Well, good morning. It's a joy to be with all of you this morning. Um, the last time we were here in January, one of you, I don't remember who, was kind enough afterwards to say, please introduce yourself a little bit. So I'll introduce myself a little bit. Um, uh, as was said, uh, we normally worship at Church in the Incarnation. Uh, my wife and I and our three uh, smaller children moved here 12 years ago. Uh, where I worked for half a dozen years at EMU, and for the last half a dozen years, I've been uh, serving at Blue Ridge Christian School, where presently I'm the Director of Development and the Dean of Christian Formation. About half a dozen years ago, we uh, began attending Church of the Incarnation. My wife uh, grew up in an Episcopal church, so she's one of the few at Incarnation who knows a little bit about this liturgical tradition. Uh, I came to it late in life, uh, but am just delighted uh, to have done so, and it's such a joy uh, to be ordained and to have the opportunity to minister uh, among you today. Uh, I'm also grateful, uh, particularly on this Mother's Day, uh, that my mother is here. I won't point her out, but you might guess about where she's sitting, and my stepfather, and they have uh, moved here uh, from Ohio, so they're now in our house, and we'll soon be moving into an apartment in our house, and we're just delighted to have them. So thank you again for uh, the invitation to be with you today. So about 60 years ago, a then little-known children's author and illustrator approached an editor of a major publisher with a new manuscript. The author was turned down on the grounds that the book he had was too sad to be a children's book and too simple to be a book for adults. Harper and Row, a competing publisher, picked up the book. They did a small first printing, and nothing much happened. But a few years later, according to a review in the New York Times, sales of the book soared, spurred by word of mouth from, of all quarters, Protestant ministers and Sunday school teachers who embraced the book as a restatement of the Christian ideal of unconditional love. Any idea what the book might be? Are you thinking of Shel Silverstein, maybe, and the book The Giving Tree? As of 2011, <clears throat> the last date I could find it, had sold eight and a half million copies. So I don't know who that first editor was for Simon and Schuster, I'm saying that right, but they missed out and Harper and Rowe cashed in. <clears throat> if you're fuzzy on the plot or you're not at all familiar with the story, it goes like this. It's about a boy who loves a tree. He enjoys the tree as a child, swinging in its branches, making a crown with its leaves, and so on. As he grows up, he visits the tree repeatedly, but later he needs things that take him away. The tree, clearly portrayed as a mother figure, offers her apples so that the man can sell them for cash. Later, she offers her branches that he might build a house for his family. Finally, still much later in life, she offers her trunk so that the man can build a boat and sail away. With each sacrificial gift, the tree finds happiness in trying to secure the happiness of the boy who's become a man. In the last scene, he returns to the tree who is now only a stump. She has nothing left to give, but is delighted to realize that all he needs now, in his old age, is a place to rest. 
I hope that's not why my mother has moved in for me. She straightens up as much as she can and invites the man to sit down on the stump that she is. We're told on the last page that the tree was happy. So I'm curious. If you're familiar with the book, I'd love to know. We won't take a show of hands. But do you resonate with the pastors and the Sunday school teachers who, according to the book's editor, helped early sales of the book to soar because they saw in it a metaphor for the Christian ideal of unconditional love? You see, the book's actually been pretty controversial. People either love it or they really don't like it. In fact, First Things, a journal for uh, public theology, did a symposium on this book when it was 30 years old. It's now 60. You can look this up online. They had a a dozen uh, scholars write in affirming the book or decrying the book, Uh, so it's intriguing. If you love it, my desire is not to begin my sermon, sermon offending you, but there's a reason I brought it up. It's this question of unconditional love that brought the book to my mind as I thought about our gospel text this morning. But here's the catch. I see Jesus' vine and branches metaphor in rather sharp contrast to Silverstein's tree metaphor. Where Silverstein's tree represents a maternal figure who demands nothing, even while she hopes for a relationship, Jesus uses his vine and branches metaphor to clearly state commands, and conditions. Did you notice it? Look again at verses 9 to 11. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. You see, in verse 9, Jesus tells us to abide. In verse 10, he tells us how to abide, which is keeping his commands. And then in verse 11, the joy that comes to us in that process. And of course, the passage says much about fruit. That's also a result. I have what may seem like a radical proposal for us this morning. Unconditional love can make a way for a relationship, or we might even say that it can make a way back to a relationship, but it can't in and of itself make a relationship. We may admire the sacrificial love demonstrated by the tree in Silverstein's classic book, but people don't generally admire the relationship between the boy and the tree. This is because deep down we know that all serious relationships have obligations, And this is another way of saying that they have expectations or conditions. Jesus doesn't shy away from naming this reality to his disciples on the same evening of his Last Supper. Now, I think we've learned to overlook these conditions that Scripture makes clear, for example, in our text today, for a couple of reasons that I'll only briefly touch on. One, I think, is theological. Being heirs of the Protestant Reformation, we're used to a separation that's pretty strong between faith and works, faith alone. And so um, I remember as a young person memorizing Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. For it is by grace that you've been saved through faith, and this is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast, full stop. In fact, I looked this up, and Child Evangelism Fellowship has this nice little ditty you can watch online about those two verses. 
but they don't include verse 10. Do you know verse 10? I hope that you learned verse 10 along with 8 and 9. Here's verse 10. For we are God's work, workmanship, or his handiwork. The Greek word is poema, like God's work of art. We are God's work of art, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. See that wonderful tension? God, of his initiative, invites us into relationship, and that is not of ourselves, but the response has to be there. It's expected. Listen to the John, the same writer of our gospel, writing in 1 John. Dear friends, let us love one another, for love comes from God. Everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. This is love. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifices. Dear friends, since God loved the world, we also ought to love one another. God initiates. We respond. God is love. Whoever lives in love lives in God and God in them. There's another reason beyond the theological, and that's cultural. We are several hundred years post the Enlightenment, an intellectual tradition bent on throwing off external authorities in favor of individual reason and personal happiness. In this tradition, commands are viewed as an extrinsic threat to our freedom and our identity. We shrug off duty as an unwelcome obligation. We're pressed by our culture in countless ways to discover our true selves in isolation from others. Of course, this is a fool's errand because as the scripture makes clear repeatedly, we are most fully formed in substantive ways through deep relationships of appropriate obligation to God and to others. So my goal in the time that remains today, and I'll be quick here, but it's that we would come to be jazzed about scriptural commands. That sound like a crazy idea? So I will have achieved my goal if you leave today thinking, commands, Jesus commands, scriptural commands, I love them. Do you know that this used to not be such a foreign idea? You've read the Psalms, right? Let's take just a sample so that we know this is possible. It's happened with the people of God before. Psalm 19, just a brief selection, starting with verse 7. The law of the Lord is perfect, refreshing the soul. The statutes of the law are trustworthy, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, giving joy to the heart. The commands of the Lord are radiant, giving light to the eyes. The fear of the Lord is pure, enduring forever. The decrees of the Lord are firm, and all of them are righteous. They are more precious than gold, than much pure gold. They're sweeter than honey, than honey from the honeycomb. So to get to this place of joy and excitement about commands, I think we have to acknowledge that commands work on us in two ways. They first teach and form us, sometimes in ways that are uncomfortable, and we therefore want to resist. But if we allow biblical commands their formative role, we discover that our very desires change and that we delight in obedience. Seeing it, just as Jesus says in our gospel text today, as part and parcel of the way we love God and others. 
Put succinctly, we can say that commands sometimes begin as mere duties, but as they reshape us, they give way to the light and the love of God and others. So to illustrate, imagine a hypothetical example. Suppose you have a daughter. Uh Uh-oh. I have one, but I assure you, this example is completely made up. It has nothing whatsoever to do with my daughter, I promise. Suppose your daughter is seriously dating a young man, and he proposes marriage. He proposes marriage. She says, will you be faithful to me until death? And suppose he says, well, huh, is that required? Now, at this point, we know we're off to a bad start. But imagine that the young man is teachable. He catches a vision for the importance of faithfulness and fully accepts the duty, the obligation to love only this daughter of yours. We could perhaps imagine how what began as a duty would lead to new desires and delights that are, in fact, only possible when certain obligations are embraced. Let me give you another example. This time it's not hypothetical. It's about a man that lives in our community that I've had the pleasure to get to know over a number of years. And um, I see him regularly. And he was faithfully married to his wife for I think about 60 years. She died a couple of years ago during COVID. And he routinely laments her loss. What's especially significant about that is for about the last 20 to 25 years of their marriage, he was her only caregiver as she was incapacitated almost completely by a rare disease. He worked from home so that he could keep an eye on her. Uh, He fed her, took care of all of her needs, and she was mostly non-communicative for 20 plus years. And what's remarkable as if you were to talk to this man about his wife and his life, he gives thanks to God for his life. He says he misses his wife. He wouldn't do it over again in any other way. He is grateful. There's a man who started by following a command. Chosen obedience. And he was reshaped by that obedience, to become the kind of person who could experience that obedience not as drudgery and as mere duty, but as something that he took desire in, that reshaped his desires, that he delighted in. So what's the point of these two stories? One, a hypothetical, one very real. Simply this. Realistically, the commands of Jesus may first come to us as required duties. But if we submit and let them have their way with us, we find that the very practice of obedience is itself a primary way of delighting in the one we love. So let me draw for a moment on one other children's story that might be familiar with you. Do you remember Wesley at Buttercup and the Princess Bride? Wesley reveals his true identity to Buttercup and crying out, as you wish, after she pushes him down the hill not knowing who he was. But this cry of the loved to the beloved, as you wish, we recognize that, right? In taking joy, in honoring the needs, the expectations, when they're good and healthy of the one we love. 
So hopefully it's clear how this pattern can work. Do we hear the command not to bear false witness as a restriction to what we might prefer to do in some cases? Let us submit to the duty and have our desires reshaped. In Christ, this really is possible. Then we can become those who delight in honesty in our relationships with God and others. And we become those who would want nothing less. What about the command not to covet? Of course, our culture thrives off this vice because through it, we're shaped into being great consumers. But if we submit to the command, we learn to love as those who are generous and we give freely to God and to others. What about the command to forgive? At first, we might do it only because we have the firmest commands from Jesus to do so. But over time, in the practice of our obedience, we can become those who delight in forgiveness. We can't imagine not giving it. We become more like our Savior. If you're familiar with Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, you know that Jesus isn't interested in external conformity to commands, but to a deeper transformation that makes real love of God and neighbors possible, a changed heart. So it's important that we see that Jesus' requirement that we keep his command is not an arbitrary entrance requirement into a loving relationship with God and others as if we could be let in on these relationships in some other way. The command keeping, which over time comes automatically from the heart, is the very way that we love God and others. It's the substance of it. So C.S. Lewis famously said that we're half-hearted creatures fooling around with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us, like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he can't imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at sea. We are far too easily pleased. So have you noticed how the catechesis works? If you ignore Jesus' commands or you're not blessed or fortunate enough to know them, and you're catechized or you're shaped by the world, the initial promise looks so enticing, right? You can have what you want on your terms and in your way. It seems so limitless, so seductive. But of course, it's a lie. It doesn't work that way. We turn in on ourselves. Someone has said that the smallest thing in the world is a person all wrapped up in himself. And that's what the catechesis of our broader culture does to us. So it begins wide, but ends in the most restrictive of ways. In the way of Jesus, the way begins with obligations. But remember the old song, Trust and Obey? We trust the giver of the commands, and in the very submission to them, we're reshaped. And it's the same Savior who says a few chapters earlier in John's Gospel, in, in chapter 8, verse 32, 33, if he says this to disciples, a broad group of disciples at that point, if you continue in my word, you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. 
That's the catechesis of the good shepherd. We submit and we find in it freedom. And so uh, it's also Jesus who invites us just a few verses later in, in this chapter into friendship. Did you catch that? Verse 14 of John 15. You are my friends if you do what I command you. There's that condition. But it's the substance. It can't be any other way. Because in the doing of the commands, we become the kind of people who share in common with our Savior the quality of life that he desires to form in us. So one last thing. Jesus, of course, right? His yoke is easy. His burden is light. We, he knows full well that we so often fail. We so often fail to keep his commands. But even there, he's so generous because he invites us to confession. He invites us to the table. He promises to renew us. What a gift. And some scholars have uh, argued that this particular passage of Jesus being the vine and the branches and the connection with wine on the night in which Jesus instituted the Lord's Supper is yet another powerful reference to the Lord's table. And so I hope you'll come this morning to our Savior who invites us to be friends. Come joyfully or come, if you need to, repentantly but he's here with arms wide open, desiring to embrace us anew. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.